Let's, let's pray together. Would you bow your head? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are Christians. And the rock underneath our feet is, you know, it's not our own strength. It's not, you know, the people who are pulling the levers. We, we stand for one reason, because of you. Because you won't fail. And Lord, I, I pray as we turn our attention to your word today, every single page of your word tells us over and over again that you are Lord God Almighty. And what you're, the story that you're writing in human history is the truth. And all other stories about what's happening are lies. Lord, please, as we open up your word, I pray that the light of truth and holiness and glory would gleam off of the pages and that we would be changed. Because for you, your word is living and active. And so, Lord, unleash it on us today, your power at work in our lives. I pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right, you can have a seat. I know oftentimes I start off a sermon with a personal story, and I have a, a, a personal story I'm going to share in about the middle of the sermon, but we're going to work our way up to there. So I'm going to borrow a sermon illustration that I, I heard from another pastor. Um, you know what they say, good artists borrow and great artists steal. I'm only a good one, so I'm just borrowing this, okay? Um, he said, I want to imagine that you're in a bank. You go into the bank and you're filling out the little deposit slip because you're going to deposit a check. Uh, and then all of a sudden, somebody comes in the door and there's like a kind of like a ruckus that's over there. And then you kind of put two and two together. This guy pulls out a knife because he's going to rob the bank. You know, your heart starts to beat a little bit and you start looking around unsure about what to do. And then you see out of the corner of your eye that there's a police officer that's stationed there. Police officer steps up, approaches the bank robber who has a knife in his hand, and he pulls out the, you know, the nine millimeter that he has in his holster and puts it at the guy and tells him, all right, this is over now. And then the bank robber looks at the police officer and kind of smirks and says, I'm actually going to keep going because I don't believe in guns. Okay. Now, imagine that the police officer gets a sad look on his face, looks at the gun pathetically, puts it back in his holster and sits down while the bank robber robs the bank and walks out. Okay. Now, what is the actual problem in this situation? Is the problem that the bank robber doesn't believe in guns? No, the real problem is that the police officer didn't believe in the gun that he had in his hand that was right there. Um, we're picking up at the final chapters of the book of Acts. And as we, as we hit these last three sermons, there's one, it's kind of one principle that I really want to put right in front of us to look at today. And that is, you know, all around Paul's life, it appeared like his life was going sort of down and to the right. But because of God's calling on his life, in spite of the fact that the circumstances seemed to be eroding, when he, he was going to stand on his two feet, and today we're going to look at it, he's going to stand in front of three of the most powerful people, and he's going to be in chains. So at some point in his sermon, his defense of why he believed in Jesus Christ. He's going to rattle the chains in his hand and he's going to look right at a powerful king right in the eye. And in that moment, the most important person to believe the truths that Paul was preaching, it's not whether Agrippa believed him or not. 
It's whether the Apostle Paul believed that the truth that he was saying about light and darkness, truth and life, whether he believed that those were true. And he stood right in front of the, the elites, the most powerful people, and said, I, you, you, this king had power, the Roman governor was a powerful person, and Paul was in chains, and Paul was the most powerful person in the entire room for one reason, because he knew the truth, and he was going to tell the truth. So let's take out our copy of God's truth, your copy of God's word. You can turn to Acts chapter 26. I'm going to ask that you stand to your feet for the reading of God's holy and majestic word. These are not human words. They're God's. Acts chapter 26. I'm going to start at verse 12, and we're going to finish at verse 29. We're picking up Paul's defense. He's sharing his testimony about what God did in his life, and we're kind of picking it up midstream. So this is the apostle Paul talking to King Herod, or to, yeah, Herod Agrippa, his sister Bernice, and the governor Festus. Verse 12, in this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent, our favorite word right there, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. So I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. As he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words for the king knows about these things. And to him, I speak boldly. For I'm persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would that God not only, that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Let's pray. 
Lord, we know that we don't get anything from your word. No one does unless your spirit gives us power that we don't have to learn what we need to learn, to see what we don't want to see but's right in front of us. Please take these words and plant them in us like seeds. Let them take root and let them grow. And as they grow, let them change us so that we're submitted to you, that we love you, that we glory in you, and that we walk in holiness. We walk in the light, not in the darkness. Please do this in Christ's name. Amen. You can have a seat. Now, you might get to this, you know, as we hit these final chapters of the book of Acts, and you might ask yourself the question, haven't we heard this before? It's, it's kind of the same story. It's Paul sharing the same thing that we've heard about, but to a different group of people. And for some of us, it can sound a little repetitive because we're looking for something new and something interesting. But we can't forget, every word that is in the Bible is there because God perfectly placed it in exactly the position that he did. He ordained that we would hear about Paul testifying in this way from many different angles and to many different kinds of people. And so what we want to do today is to pay attention to the things about this that are different. We want to pay attention to what it is that is actually happening in this event so that we can walk away having gleaned and learned something from this. Now, Paul is on trial. He's on trial again. Now, he's on trial again because there's a problem. The governor, Festus, has inherited this prisoner, Paul. And Paul, for years, has been under charges. But every trial that Paul is in, the person, the judge presiding over the trial keeps trying to come to the bottom of what are the actual charges here and are the things that he's being charged with in our jurisdiction. And so consistently because the priests and the Jewish religious leaders are the ones bringing the charges, the Roman rulers are trying to come to an understanding. Has he violated anything within Roman law for which this trial and his arrest is merited? But Festus has a problem. He does not really understand the Jewish religion. And as far as he can tell, there's not, there's not anything that he, that he can do about this. But Paul is a Roman citizen. He's a citizen of the great city of Rome. And along with being a citizen comes the rights uh, to appeal for a fair trial back in Rome under Caesar's court. But a governor like Festus ought not to send a prisoner back to Rome if there's no case to even be tried. So he has got to figure out what are charges that I can attach in a letter with the Apostle Paul, send him back to Rome so that there's actually a charge there to be appealed that falls within our jurisdiction. And it just so happens, out of nowhere, comes King Herod, Herod Agrippa, Herod Agrippa Jr. Herod Agrippa is a Jew. So he understands the Mosaic law, he understands the prophets, but he's also a king who traffics in Roman power circles. Festus sees Herod as the perfect person. Help me translate these religious charges to something that would show a violation of Roman law so I could send Paul off to, uh, off to Rome with, with some actual charges. Now, I think you heard me just use the phrase, just so happened. It just so happened that Herod Agrippa shows up with his sister Bernice, two of the most well-connected, powerful people in the Roman Empire. Bernice would go on in a third marriage to be married to Titus. Titus was the son of Vespasian. Vespasian was, was the emperor and Titus would serve as the emperor. She was uh, in, in her third romance, sorry, it wasn't a marriage, in her third romance that was almost a marriage, she almost was married to the emperor of Rome. But here she's sitting with her brother Herod. Herod, Bernice, 
uh, and Governor Festus. But it's not just the three of them that are there. Luke tells us earlier in this chapter in a section that we didn't read that all the well-to-do elites, the college professors, the economic business leaders, the Chamber of Commerce, the JCs, the Rotary, the Elks Club, American Legion, military commanders, says there was great pomp. It was a massive gathering. Hundreds of people are there to honor and celebrate the inauguration of this new, of this new Governor Festus. Now, I want you to imagine this. This last weekend I was in, uh, this last week I had my first visit to New York City and I was walking by the Met, right? And that's this beautiful building. And I was kind of thinking about this sermon at the same time. You know, that's what we pastors do. We're thinking about the sermon all week long. So that's why when you tell us stories at dinner and stuff, you always have to give a little precursor. Don't share this in a sermon because otherwise it's fair game, you know? No one's ever going to tell me anything at dinner again. So I'm there, and I was just thinking about the Met Gala, you know. All the well-to-do's come dressed up and all there, and the media's there, and they're taking pictures, and it's a grand thing. Now, I just want you to imagine, right? The people who show up to the Met are the, are the elites, you know, the people who really are somebody. Imagine if all the elites are gathered, you know, hundreds and hundreds of them in this room, the people who make the world go around. And imagine the Apostle Paul came out with chains on his hands walked right out to the microphone. And the person presiding over the Met Gala said, Paul, go ahead and preach. And Paul got to preach to all the elites in our society. This is actually the event that happened in Acts 26. All the elites of the Roman Empire in that whole area were sitting right there. The, the rulers, the king and the governor, but all the people who had gathered and Paul comes out in his chains And Agrippa says, go ahead and start. Now, it just so happened that hundreds and hundreds of the most influential people in Rome were there to hear one of the greatest preachers ever, Paul. It just so happened. But can you remember all the coincidences, all the things that happened along the way for Paul to have this audience to share the gospel with this many people of this much influence and power? Now remember, Paul went back to Jerusalem because he had an offering. The offering was a gift of some of the wealthier Christians in Europe over to the Christians that were in Jerusalem because there was a famine that was there. So he was bringing the offering. And he just happened to bring that offering at the time of year where there was a Jewish festival. Because at the Jewish festival, Jews from all over the world would go to Jerusalem to celebrate the festival. And it just so happened that one of the Jews from a town that Paul had preached up, up in Turkey, that that, that, that that person just happened to see the Apostle Paul at the temple and started a riot because he thought that the Apostle Paul took a Gentile into the temple and so the, and there was a, the riot got started. Now it just so happened that at a Jewish festival like this, the Roman authorities were on high alert for things just like this. Just so happened that news about Paul being beaten in this riot reached the ears of the, of the tribune in the Antonia castle in the temple. And it just so happened that they arrived and they grabbed the Apostle Paul and rescued and saved his life. He was moments away from death. It just so happened that that happened, right? And then it just so happened that the tribune uh, who grabbed the Apostle Paul, um, as he interrogated him, he was a moral upright man. He was actually looking for charges. 
And it just so happened that the Apostle Paul was born a Roman citizen so that instead of being beaten and just left in prison, he could let them know, hey, I'm a Roman citizen. And that meant that they had to follow the proper protocols of justice that gave Paul the opportunity in one trial after another trial after another trial to preach the gospel and share his testimony about what happened the day that he met Christ. Just so happened that Felix, the governor, was a wicked man. And because he wanted to maintain political power with the Jewish people, he knew that there were no charges against Paul, and yet he left him in prison for two years. It just so happened, and it just so happened that Luke traveled with him on this road. So it just so happened that these were the two years that Luke probably interviewed all the Christians so that he could write two pretty good books, one the Gospel of Luke and the other the book of Acts, yes? Did you hear how many times I said just so happened in there? And one of the things that I want to point out is this event of Paul standing in front of these elites preaching the gospel and sharing his testimony. It wasn't a coincidence. That's not what Christians believe. What the Bible tells us is that God has a plan. It's a good plan. Everything is in that plan. Everything. In this plan are coincidences Things that nobody planned and nobody thought about, people weren't really paying attention, but you know, one day rolls into another and things happen. Is God sovereign over all the coincidences that happen? The answer to that biblically is yes. Do you believe that? Not only is God sovereign over coincidences, God is sovereign over the righteous actions of moral people. Um, the centurion who intervened and went to speak to the tribune and said, do you realize this guy is a Roman citizen? Are you really gonna beat him? That guy took courage to stand up to his superior officers. Was God sovereign over that upright action of a moral person? Absolutely. Absolutely. But there were actions of wicked people. A whole mob grabbed hold of Paul and beat him almost to death. Was that in the plan? Was God sovereign over the wicked actions of those people? Yes, he was. They had their own reasons for doing what they did. But ultimately, the reason why they did what they did is because it was part of God's plan. This is something that the Bible teaches through and through. If you're familiar with biblical stories, you'll, you'll be familiar with a guy named Joseph. Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers. Through a bunch of coincidences, i.e. God's plan, he ended up being the prime minister, the second most powerful person in the whole nation of Egypt when those wicked brothers came to appear before him. And you know what he said to them? He said, you meant it for evil. And they did. They had their own motivations for why they did what they did. And he said, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. God had written this event into Joseph's life for his own good purposes so that the people are responsible morally for their wicked choices that they made. And yet over the top of it, even the wicked intentions of wicked people against Paul, against Joseph, against Christ, against you. Anybody have any wicked people who are trying to implement a wicked plan against you right now? And I want you to know Scripture teaches that God is working together all things, even the evil actions of evil people. He's working those things together for, for the good of the called. God is sovereign over everything. Paul was standing in this room, not because of coincidence, because this was the unfolding eternal plan of God. 
and Paul gets right to it. The picture I want you to have in your head is Paul. If, if, if you can imagine when Paul was at full froth, you know, when his passion level, when he was turned up to 11, you know, past 10 up to 11, when he was turned up to 11 and he was preaching the truth with fervor, what do you think was the look on his face or the look in his eyes? Can you imagine the intensity in Paul's eyes when he was at it? Those two eyes are focused right on this guy, Agrippa. And I want to point out to you why this is true. Now, the name Herod Agrippa should ring some bells for lots of people because from the Christmas story on, the name Herod is a famous name in the New Testament. And it's not the name of one person, it's a whole family dynasty. And it is a wicked dynasty. This Herod Agrippa is Herod Agrippa Jr. So as soon as you know that there's a Herod Agrippa Jr., you know that there must be a Herod Agrippa. Yes, excellent. Um, Herod Agrippa Sr. died in spectacular fashion when Herod Agrippa Jr. was 17 years old. We read about it if you've been here for this whole series. There was a day that he was in the Roman capital city of Caesarea. And the people were praising him and saying, his voice is like he's a God. He accepted the praise. He accepted people calling him God. And on that day, he was smitten from heaven. He was judged by Christ for taking away glory. And he died by being eaten by worms. But before that happened, he killed the apostle James. He ordered that he be executed. He also had Peter in prison, and he was planning on killing Peter too. But that night, an angel let Peter out of the prison. And this next day is when those events unfolded. Herod Agrippa Jr.'s father, Herod Agrippa Sr., had Christian blood of martyrs right on his hands. Now his father, Herod Antipas, Herod Antipas also had Christian blood on his hands. He was the one who ordered the beheading of John the Baptist. But their grandfather, Herod the Great, was so threatened by Jesus' birth that in one broad stroke, he ordered the killing of all the children who could have been born around the same time as Jesus. And he had, he had children's blood on his hands. And now can't you see why the Apostle Paul, when he's standing there, he's going to make eye contact with Herod and he's going to be talking about wickedness and he's talking about turning from darkness to light? And he's telling him, Herod knows what I'm talking about. He knows. And he starts telling his own story. Because on one hand, what we could say is like, yeah, the apostle Paul should get after a guy like that. Somebody who murders people, murders innocent people, sheds innocent blood. I want the apostle Paul to get after that guy, right? And then the apostle Paul starts sharing with Herod his own story. He grew up a Jew when he was 10 years old. He was born in Turkey when he was 10 years old. He got sent to study in Jerusalem at the great religious educational institution of Gamaliel, which means he grew up in Jerusalem. Paul would have been in Jerusalem during those times when Jesus would have come and visited on the festivals. He studied with Gamaliel, who was an influential person to the high council of the Jews. 
Two years after the crucifixion of Jesus, Paul was on the Sanhedrin. There is almost no chance that the Apostle Paul wasn't in Jerusalem the day of the trial, the day of the crucifixion. He would have been walking in the same exact circles as Herod Jr. walked. And he was convinced, Paul tells us, that he was convinced that the, the thing that God wanted him to do was to kill Christians. That day at that trial, when Paul has his eyes dead set on Herod Agrippa and he's going to push him into a decision, he, he says to him, you know about these things, Herod, because you know that Jesus Christ was not crucified in some backwater corner of town where this is the first time you're hearing about it. You know exactly what I'm talking about. You got one guy, Paul, with Christian blood on his hands. He tried Christians. He punished Christians. He confesses that he would use torment and torture to try to convince Christians to recant their faith and to say that they don't believe in Jesus Christ. This is what Paul did. And you got Paul with Christian blood on his hands. And you got Herod Agrippa with Christian blood on his hands. Next to Herod Agrippa, you have Bernice. Bernice had, she was the younger sister of Herod Agrippa II. So when he's looking at Herod and Bernice, he's looking at a brother and sister. She's one year younger than him. She's had uh, three failed marriages. In between each of those marriages, she returns and lives with Herod Agrippa. Multiple historians report the fact that Herod Agrippa and Bernice were in a sexual relationship with each other as brother and sister. The Apostle Paul's preaching right to them. And he's talking about what it means to turn from darkness to light. What it means to turn away from the power of Satan to the power of God. But Paul's boldness... And he is bold when he goes after them. Paul's boldness does not come from his own moral superiority. Because what stopped him from killing Christians just like Herod did? What stopped him from that wicked sin? He didn't one day was journaling at the, you know, at the local cafe, having a cafe au lait, and just thinking to himself, you know what, I think maybe I'm on the wrong road here. I'm thinking maybe I should choose a different pathway for myself and start doing the right thing. I think I'm going to apologize, and I think I'm going I'm to get myself on the right track. But I want you to know, do you know how many people talk as if that's the way that you come into Christianity? What stopped the Apostle Paul from killing more Christians? He was within a mile of walking into a town condensed with Christians, prepared to do the same thing, to shed their blood, to beat them, to punish them, to hold them up and say, turn your back on Jesus Christ or else. He was prepared to do that. What stopped him? Jesus Christ in all of his glory. Jesus Christ called out to him, Saul, Saul. And what Paul's demonstrating for us right here with Agrippa is true Christian boldness. We're not bold with other people because we're morally superior, because, you know, we're the kind of people who understand that the Bible is true and we're the kind of people that we were soft in our hearts and so when Jesus forgave us, we were 99% a good person and the Holy Spirit come and kind of kicked us over the line and now we're Christians. Mostly because of what we've done, but yeah, we needed a little bit of help from the Lord, but you, oh boy, you're all the way back at one. You know, you've got a long way to go. I'm not even sure that you can even be a Christian. That is not the kind of boldness that Paul has. He's got this boldness for one reason. 
He shakes his chains at Herod and said, I want this for you. Except for the chains. I want you to become like I am. I want you to hear God calling your name. When Jesus calls out to Saul, he says, Saul, Saul, he repeats his name twice. In the Bible, when a name gets repeated like that, it's a call of personal intimacy. A young boy named Samuel would be sleeping in the temple and at night, God would call Samuel and he would say, Samuel, Samuel. A guy named Moses would meet God in a bush that looked like it was on fire, but it wasn't burning. And that's because the glorious angel of the Lord was in the bush. And from in the bush, God personally called out to Moses. What did he say? Moses, Moses. Jesus, after he's resurrected, meets Peter, who's dejected. And what does he, what does he say to him? What does he say to him? Peter, Peter. See, when the difference between Saul looking at Herod Agrippa, they were both elites. The Apostle Paul was an aristocratic, came from an aristocratic family, he's a Roman citizen. They were both elites. They both had Christian blood on their hands. What was the only difference between the two of them? Jesus called. Saul met Christ personally, and he wanted the same thing to happen to Herod Agrippa. Okay, and here's why I say this. Can we just talk personally a little bit before I get ready to wrap up this sermon? I'm gonna sit down and we're just gonna have a little heart to heart, okay? Um, I've had a number of people come and talk to me and say, boy, Seth, one of the things that we really appreciate about your preaching is like, you're, you're pretty bold in talking about subjects that can sometimes feel a little bit like, well, is he really talking about that? Yeah? And uh, I wanted to tell you just a little bit about where that comes from. I was watching uh, this last week, a friend recommended to me a, a documentary. I recommend it to you. American Gospel Part Two. And in the American Gospel Part Two, they're interviewing and telling the story of, of a, a lot of people whom over the last 30 years rose to pretty prominent positions of influence and leadership within the evangelical church. And so they're interviewing these people. And they're hearing from them these ideas that they ascribe to and they were preaching and teaching about. And the ideas that they've been prescribing and preaching and teaching about, the documentary goes on to just show you, they're not in the Bible. They're contrary to the Bible. And many of the people who were influential Christian leaders 20 years ago have now come out and told you, I, I didn't even believe God the whole time. I'm talking about prominent names. You might have heard, have you ever heard of Tony Campolo? His son, Bart, was an evangelical Christian leader. He came out and just said, I don't even believe in God anymore. I just can't believe that, I can't believe this stuff that's in here. Um, a, a guy who uh, wrote a book called The Shack, William Paul Young, universalist. The documentary just says that what he's teaching and writing about, it's not, it's not true. Um, a guy who's, I mean, extremely famous right now, a pastor named Stephen Furtick, who pastors a church called Elevation Church. They showed clip after clip of him saying things that like, well, oh my gosh, that's not even in the Bible. A guy named Shane Claiborne. A girl named Jen Hatmaker. A guy named Richard Rohr, who's made the Enneagram real famous. Um, a guy named Rob Bell. 
okay, and here's the thing. While I'm watching the documentary, I'm having two feelings going on. One is white hot anger at the stupid things that are coming out of these people's mouths. Like, you are being totally ridiculous. And at the same time, an amazing amount of humility. Because 20 years ago, if you would have looked at my podcast and the people who I was reading and listening to who I thought were geniuses, it was basically almost all of these people. And the only difference between them and me was that God in his grace and mercy reached out to me and called me back to the truth of the Bible. Now, Seth, right here, this is the truth. It's the only difference. And so whenever, um, whenever I open this up and I start talking about things like um, gender difference, or start talking about the roles that God has designed within marriage. Uh, when I, you know, if you're at the men's study, we're talking about Noah and the flood, the worldwide flood. When we start talking about Seth, you don't actually you don't actually not believe in evolution, do you? you? You don't actually believe that God made Adam out of the dust of the ground and made Eve out of his rib? You don't really believe that that's true? And I, want, I look right at it and say, yes, I do. And the reason I do is because God said it. It's right here. I'm going to trust his word. I'm not going to trust whatever junk you're talking about. Not because I'm the kind of person who has a, a junk discernment meter because I walked the pathway of not trusting and believing God in his word completely. And I don't want anybody else to walk that pathway. I've seen, I've personally experienced what happens when you root yourself in the truth of what this says and you don't ever think yourself to be wiser than the Bible. I've experienced what that's like. And I want it for you. And this is the same thing. The Apostle Paul is looking with boldness and generosity at Herod, shaking his chains. Herod, I want this for you. Not because I'm the kind of person who discovered the truth and now I'm here to rescue and save you. No. I'm here to tell you that I met a man, Jesus Christ, resurrected, and he called my name, and he called me from darkness. I thought that I was doing the right thing, and I was groping around in the darkness, and now I've seen the light, and I want that for you too. And I'm going to tell you the truth, because you know. And you and I are in exactly the same position, because... In the providence of God, this book has been protected miraculously and divinely from the time that it was assembled, in spite of the great threats to try to tear it down and destroy it. And almost nowhere in the world can you say, Jesus Christ died on the cross, a propitiation for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. And because of that cross, you can be made right with God, and it is the only way. And when you say that, almost around the entire world, people will know what you're talking about. They might not believe it, but they will know what you're talking about. You want to know why? Because the cross didn't happen in some corner of human history. It happened at the pinnacle of it, and people are obsessed with it and can't stop talking about it. Christians can't stop talking about it. And do you ever notice that unbelievers also can't stop talking about it? Here's what I'm saying. If you're a Christian in this room, the most important person to believe that this is God's word and everything it contains is truth, and it's truth that people need to hear. 
The most important person to believe that is not the unbeliever. The most important person to believe that is you and me. Do we look here and say, what this says about marriage, this is what we believe. What this says about tithing. You know, the Bible says there's like two ways to live. You can live with 100% of your income without God's blessing. That's one way to live. Or you can set aside 10% and give it to the Lord and live with 90% and God's blessing. The Bible says that one of those ways is the wise way and one is a stupid way. Who, right? Who's, um, who's the most important person to believe that what God says in here about money is true? The unbeliever or the believer? You know, we just go one by one. Start to finish, this is the word of the Lord. He's spoken. He's brought us out of darkness into light. What we have here is a gun. Paul talked to Agrippa. Agrippa sidestepped his challenge. Agrippa, you, this didn't happen in a corner. You know what I'm talking about. Do you believe in the prophets? Now, do you think the fact that he was sleeping with his sister had anything to do with why when he heard the message of Paul about what it meant to be made right with God, why he sidestepped the issue and said, I don't really want to talk about that? Do you think his moral condition had anything to do with the fact that he didn't want to consider what Paul was talking about? When we share the truth of God's word about what it means to be made right with God, and we walk people right down the Romans road that Paul wrote about. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No one is righteous. Not one single person has lived in the right way. If the unbeliever says, you know, yeah, but that's from the Bible. I don't really believe the Bible. He's saying that he doesn't believe in the gun. Then what do you do? Well, it's interesting that you should say that because over in Romans chapter 3, right? When we're... What we're talking about with people when we're sharing our faith is not based on our own righteousness. That's not where the boldness comes from. It comes from our confidence and our trust in it and our trust that this is the most relevant conversation to have with anybody and everybody because all of our lives are going to one place. And Jesus tells a haunting story about what happens. He said there will be people maybe a lot of the people on the American Gospel video who will have led seminars in Jesus' name and published books in Jesus' name and, ha- and went on preaching circuits in Jesus' name and started churches in Jesus' name and they're going to stand right in front of the same Jesus who called Saul. And they're going to say to him, Lord, Lord. And he's going to say, I don't know who you are. And they will have been on the missions committee. Most important person for you and I to think about this morning is not what did Herod Agrippa do with Paul's bold message that you can be made right with God, but only one way through Jesus Christ. The most important person is not for us to figure out, I wonder what happened with Herod and Bernice later. No, forget about Herod and Bernice. And think about you. Have you heard Jesus call your name? Have you responded in saving faith? Not what you've done, not what you can do, not in a righteousness of your own. Have you met the living God? Has he called you out of darkness and into light? Have you been born again? 
And if you haven't, what I'm talking about right now is the most relevant information that you need. There is only one way to be made right with God, and that's through Jesus Christ. He didn't die on a cross in some backwater corner. He did it in, all of, in front of all of human history. What have you done with Christ? Would you stand? Let me close in a prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray that the words that I shared, I pray that they honor you. I pray that the truth of your word shines like a light for us. I pray for anybody here who's struggling to believe your word about some subject that is really hard for them to swallow. I pray that by your spirit, would you show them they're not in a neutral position about it. We disbelieve your word because we want to hold on to some sin. Convict us of that. Give us the kind of moral purity that gives us the conviction and confidence to believe you. Lord, I pray for anybody in here who's never been born again. I pray even as they picture themselves looking, oh, looking in your eyes, looking in your holy eyes. I pray that the idea of them doing that, never having reconciled themselves to you, I pray that that would haunt them. And I pray that by your spirit, you would use that conviction to turn them from darkness to light. God, please, I pray that everybody who could hear me right now is like the Apostle Paul, except for his chains. Having come to saving faith, having met Christ, having been born again, I pray all this in his name. Amen.